uh, everybody to the uh, Blitzscaling a Startup podcast. I am Julian Newman. And I'm Chris Yeh. And together we are awesome and happy and it's Friday. So that's that's always good. Yeah, and so far so good. So I actually got my COVID-19 booster and flu shots yesterday. And so far I don't seem to be too fatigued, which is a good sign. I see... I need to call this out in the top right corner of your screen. I see blitzscaling. Yes. So I try to keep the books in the background. It's a little subtle branding that I think is helpful. And is that impromptu? Reads it is. Book? It is. And then over on the other side, it's a startup of you. And again, I'm not right. actually an author of the startup of you, but so many people associate me with it. I put it up in the background anyways. Hmm. Yeah, it reminds me of Ben, who I spoke to yesterday. He was just announcing they have a new uh, fund that they just announced. Yes, no, it's a big news. It's a $250 million fund for Village Global. So that's excellent. And, you know, again, it, it means that Ben is committed for at least the next decade or so. And look, I mean, I think it's something where the key is if you become an investor, you have to make sure you still don't have that itch to be a founder anymore. And I certainly don't, which is why I'm okay with being an investor. And I assume that Ben has come to terms with that as well. I, I can't imagine how, but um, I, I could definitely not be a full-time VC myself. Well, you know, I think part of it is that when we look at, when we look at life, I think Ben's mentioned, it, it's like, you know, it's actually pretty interesting to be a venture capitalist in terms of the people you get to talk with. You get to talk with these entrepreneurs. You get to talk with some of these very sophisticated investors. It means that the people you talk with on a day-to-day -day basis are pretty interesting folks. It makes it uh, a more positive experience for somebody who really likes to have intellectual discussions with folks. Yeah, I mean, it's obviously a really great job. Um, I just love being a founder uh, so much. I got to say, like, you know, in my previous career working politics, I loved it. When I worked in a kind of more corporate setting, I just hated it. I really hated it. And I, I seriously thought about going back into politics. Um, I knew it was a wrong thing to do because it's just not, it's not a real career, right? Politics right. is not something you should do your whole life. And, um, but I wanted to go back because I hated having a real job. And when I became an entrepreneur, I realized that that was an even better fit for me. Um, it's just such a, exactly what someone like me should be doing. Exactly. I was actually speaking with an entrepreneur the other day who had been a part of a variety of different startups, helped them go public and all these different things. And she thought that she should take a cushy corporate job. And the founders that she had worked with told her, no, nah, that's dumb. The investors told her, no, nah, that's dumb. You should be an entrepreneur. You're going to hate it. And she said, so I took that cushy corporate job and four months later I quit. And she said, the final straw was, I went to the CEO of the company and I had this report that I put together on a, a bunch of changes that would dramatically improve the performance of the company. And the CEO didn't even look at them and said, great work, but you know, let's not break with, let's not fix what isn't broken. At which point she went home afterwards, yeah. called her husband and said, I'm quitting my job. Yeah. So. The thing that I always think about, so let's say here I'm in Asia, right? So now I've changed my schedule, but I was waking up at like 2 a.m. every day, just 
obviously I hate waking up in the morning. So that's like, like intense and crappy. And I didn't mind at all. I really, 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 really did not care. It was fine. When I had a corporate job and I had to wake up to be at the office at 9 a.m., I was like, why am I awake? Like, it's the only time in my life where I had to wake up and like normally I wake up early and I'm totally fine. And the only time I would wake up, I was like, why am I not sleeping right now is when I had a, a, a job. And it's just not a good fit for me. Well, what this clearly reveals is that money alone and even money and status are not a motivator for you because that's why you take yeah. a corporate job. It's not yeah. because anyone says, oh, this is so meaningful and fulfilling. It's because it is steady money, often quite a lot. And you get status out of it because if you're a fancy executive at a company, people think that you're important. But if you consider those things to be illusions or not as important, then what's the appeal? Yeah, it's true. Like the time in my life where dating was the easiest was when I had that job. Um, and, you know, it was kind of a lobbying job. So I'd go mm -hmm. to a lot mm -hmm. of events and had, you know, really like an actual unlimited expense account, right? Like you'd go right. have like drinks with people and you'd spend like 10K on beers for everybody. And that was the job. And it's like, like, that's actually really cool in theory, or you'd, you know, meet girls on Tinder and then be like, Hey, you want to come to this like gala, um, or like tickets or, or like $20,000 a pop. I have two. And it's like so much easier to date. Um, that was the only thing I cared about. I was younger. Um, that was the only thing that I liked about having that job, but yes, let's not bore our, uh, listeners. <laughs> uh, and, and jump into the, the actual topic which is surprise yes. and delight um so hopefully we'll surprise and delight or at least delight our uh listeners with this topic yeah so i saw the email i actually looked at it this morning because i wanted to refresh myself i had a couple of minutes before things started and well, the reason you talk about surprise and delight is because this is something that's been a truism about products. Like create something that surprises and delights. I sometimes refer to it as the magic principle, which is when you create something that seems magical, it really works. And I think that what you want me to do is unpack this a little bit. Why does surprise and delight work? Yeah, it's like, what does it mean? Because I think a lot of people, like it's a really nice sounding term that everybody throws around yeah and it has a real meaning and it's actually a really powerful concept right but so people use it for infinite amount of things and i i'm not sure i really understand what it's supposed to mean so um what wh what what is it supposed to mean so let's just use a very clear example of something that is enormously successful right now largely as a result of surprise and delight and that is ChatGPT, which has kicked off this entire artificial intelligence revolution. So why was the launch of ChatGPT surprising and delightful? And the first part is it was surprising because we did not expect it to be this good. And people like me who were not deep in the industry, but were following along, had followed some of the results from OpenAI's previous efforts, GPT-1, GPT-2, GPT-3. And I would characterize GPT-1 output as gibberish. I would characterize GPT-2 output as semi-gibberish. And I would characterize GPT-3 output as nonsense. 
In other words, GPT-1 was unrecognizable as an attempt to communicate. GPT-2, you could sort of say, okay, I think I can vaguely get it's trying to say something, but there's still a bunch of stuff that makes no sense. There are no words. And GPT-3 was nonsense in the sense that technically it scanned as English sentences, but it didn't make any sense if you thought about it. And so all of this was certainly progress. GPT-2 was better than GPT-1. GPT-3 is better than GPT-2. But what was surprising was this discontinuity. When ChatGPT came out, which is GPT 3.5, all of a sudden, it was capable of composing coherent English, in fact, better than most human beings could. And it could answer a question about anything that the internet knew about. Not always correctly, but it could answer the question about anything. And so the surprise was we had thought and been trained for many decades the artificial intelligence was always going to be 20 years away. And there have been so many AI waves and winters that the people who are aware of the history, like me, were just incredibly and supremely cynical about whether or not this generation of AI was going to get there because it had never gotten there in the past. But then when it actually came, it created this surprise. I'm like, wow, this actually works. Now, let's talk about the delight element of it. Well, the do delight you mind if mm -hmm. we, if I uh, just kind of make sure I understand that surprise part. Mm -hmm. So the surprise, to, to, to state it more specifically, the surprise occurs when a linear extrapolation of the trends or an extrapolation from what you know about the person bringing out the product would lead you to conclude that it was going to be one thing. And what you actually get is much, much better. And so, and the surprise is a surprise from the perspective of the users, right? So it's kind Correct. of like the customers, users, whatever, the, it, they see this product and they're like, oh, hey, I didn't expect something like this to exist. And it's, and, and, and so what's included in that? Like, I think what's part of what's included in that is that it's a, it, somehow a different category then the cat like is that right that's a different category it doesn't all in a different category okay so it doesn't have to be it depends on how you define category so when we look at the world there are four things that can add value that's faster cheaper better and different right those are the four things faster cheaper better everyone's aware of but different is also important but different only matters in as much as it results in faster cheaper better as well so you could argue that ChatGPT is a new category because we did not have a general purpose AI chatbot before. But what you could also argue instead is the reason it's relevant is because it could do things faster, cheaper, and better. It can certainly compose text faster. It is certainly cheaper than hiring a human to do it. And it is better than the vast majority of human beings for the vast majority of tasks. And so those are the things that cause it to be something that is fundamentally important. If it were just different, if we're an AI chatbot, but it was producing nonsense results that weren't useful, it wouldn't have the same effect. I'll give you two examples and see if I understood. So I think there are two, two different types of businesses which can surprise you. Mm -hmm. One would be, let's say, LinkedIn versus monster.com, where it's like, hey, look, this is just a different way of hiring. It's just, right. it's, it's, it is better, 
but it's also just a different category. And Correct. then you'd have, let's say, Google, which should be, hey, this is so much better than Yahoo that it ends up being categorically different. Um, but but it's not really a different category. It's just so much better. Is that is that right? Yeah, but I mean, let's unpack the the betterness. So the reason that LinkedIn is better than Monster is twofold. The first is that it is a more comprehensive database. So the issue with the monster.coms and the, basically the resume databases is that people would up, upload a resume, uh, but only people who are actively seeking a job would upload a resume, and even not all of those people. It didn't serve the needs of the passive job seeker. And LinkedIn was always intended to serve the passive job seeker. This is a way for everyone to have their resume out online at all times, to keep it up to date, and yet to not necessarily have it be a signal that you're looking to leave your job, which can often cause problems with your current employer. The second thing is the information will be kept up to date. I don't know if you remember using Monster, but if you looked up resumes on monster.com, there was a decent chance that resumes were old or out of date, no longer applied. Whereas LinkedIn being a living network was something that was kept up to date. And that also made it superior. And then the final thing, of course, is because LinkedIn was able to know what the social graph was, it could tell you, oh, are there people you know in common? It made it easier for you to do reference checking and the like. So yes, in some sense, it is theoretically an online resume, but an online resume database where you have many more people, where the information is going to be more accurate, and where you have the con better context around that does end up being a qualitative difference for LinkedIn relative to Monster. For Google relative to Yahoo, it was more of a qualitative difference. How quickly can you get the search results? And again, of course, today, Google is very different. It has you know, the snippets, all these different things. But even in the ancient days, the main thing was just its search results were better. The information was given to you more quickly and more likely to be accurate. And so that was less of a giant qualitative difference, more of a quantitative difference, but was a large enough qualitative difference that it got people to switch. And it's also the case, it's not that hard to switch search engines, right? You just, instead of typing yahoo.com, you type google.com or you have it bookmarked. Okay, so so the as an entrepreneur, the takeaway is when users see my product, they need to say, whoa, this is something that is different than what I've experienced in the past. And that's either because it's so much better, that's just a different category, or it's that it just is a different category um, and also is so much better. And, and if I, and, and this is something I think most entrepreneurs, including myself, don't really think about. It's like, if I create a product that where people aren't like, whoa, I. I didn't know something like this existed, then that's a problem, right? Like that's right. that that's the kind of takeaway. Yeah. And again, I think it's worth noting that, you know, here's some good examples of why different isn't necessarily that much better or different doesn't guarantee victory. Clearly, one of the successes, not the biggest success, but a success in the social media space is Snap, formerly Snapchat. And Snap chat came out and its differentiator was it was image-based but there were other things that were image-based it was that the images themselves were temporary and would disappear and that got it a lot of attention and people started using it 
But in the end, did that difference really make a difference? I mean, these days, if you use Snap, do your images disappear? The answer is generally no, right? That's not the default anymore. And Snap was able to use a gimmick to sort of get a significant user base. And once they had a user base, they had some network effects that would keep them going, especially among certain populations. But Snap is minuscule in comparison to Instagram, which was able to quickly adopt some of the messaging-oriented features of Snap and basically steal its thunder. So the big thing is, yeah, you can be different. You can surprise people. But does that surprise actually delight? Does it actually matter over the long run? All right, Chris, look, someone oh. is loving our podcast setup. Thank you, Brendan. Ha ha. Thank you, Brendan. This is good. This will keep Julian reformed, <laughs> caring about audio quality and everything. All right. So, um, so for everyone who's listening to this on uh, audio format, we had a, a comment uh, from uh, one of the listeners. Uh, okay. So I think that, and this is a good segue to the delight part. So it's kind of like, yeah, you want to surprise people, but you don't want to surprise and annoy or surprise and, you know, don't care. Uh, you want to surprise and delight. So so maybe, you know, what's what, what, what delights people? Well, this is an interesting one. And I'm going to return to ChatGPT because there are some interesting elements to ChatGPT that help increase the sense of delight. One of the reasons why I often refer to this as magic is that magic, which is something that magicians perform, is not necessarily real, right? Magic is something that people do that creates this perception of surprise and delight, as opposed to, you know, Penn and Teller can't actually saw a woman in half or something like that. So there are some elements of showmanship to ChatGPT that I help, I think, help increase the sense of surprise and delight. One of the things I would point out to people and I know it's true because I've spoken with people who are technical founders and other people who work in the space, is if you use ChatGPT or almost any of the chatbots, you'll see that it will, you'll enter a query, a prompt, it'll think for a short period of time, and then it'll begin typing out the answer. And it'll type out the answer one character at a time. That is, in some sense, how it is doing it, but usually doesn't start putting those Informate that information out there in a stream. That's not the way the LLMs actually return their output. The LLM returns the entire output, and it is a design choice on the part of the makers of ChatGPT, OpenAI, the makers of Claude, Google, and so on and so forth to stream out the answer as if a mind had thought about it and was now typing it out. Now, in some sense, this is obviously worse. And it's something that bugs me because I'm like, just give me the answer right away. I can read faster than you stream those answers. And so all this does is annoy me. But maybe for other people who aren't capable of reading as fast, it creates this illusion of thought that helps add to the experience, right? I show these demos to people. I will show people how these tools work and I'll do a prompt. Most people really haven't thought that deeply about AI, and they're not aware of just how powerful it is. So I will say, what's something you're trying to do? And I will put in a prompt, and I will do it right there on my phone, and then show it to them. And they're astonished, because they never thought to themselves, something that would normally take me two hours to do, I can do for free in 10 seconds. 
But part of it, it the, the most important part is that it's something that can be done for free in 10 seconds. But imagine a magician that was going through their act without the patter, without the showmanship. Just like, here, take a card. It's a queen of spades. Take another card. It's a king of hearts. That's not the same experience. So, okay. I think there are two parts to the delight or two kind of like drivers of the delight. Maybe it's a good way to, to put it. Like one is conceptually at a macro level, your product needs to just delight people. And then in the kind of micro level execution, it needs to be, you know, really good product that delights people. So, so for, for example, um, you know, LinkedIn is a product which conceptually at the kind of idea level, it's like, whoa, everyone's on here. Oh my God. Like, that's just like really cool. And like, you have like the search space where you can like find everybody and connect with them. It's like, that's just really cool. I think LinkedIn has that. I think LinkedIn uh, at, you know, the micro level, like product you know, level, like less has that less than other businesses and they've needed to develop that less while, uh, you know, an Uber, for example, uh, like the kind of, or, um, Robin hood, uh, app is like, Whoa, it's like, so like, it's just like the, the kind of like the product. It's an entertainment app. Exactly. The key to Robin hood is not that it allows you to trade. It's that it turns trade into entertainment. So there's, and, and you can, so, so let's say Robinhood isn't that conceptually different, but it's like the execution of it delights you while LinkedIn is conceptually different, but the execution isn't, you know, at, at the same level as a Robinhood. Uh, and, and both are fine. I mean, obviously you'd want both, but, you know, one or the other is actually fine uh, as those two examples demonstrate. And I think that, you know, LinkedIn has made some progress towards increasing delight, primarily through its content vector. So something that LinkedIn has done over the past decade is transition from being a largely passive database to something that really emphasized posts and articles and interaction. And that has provided more of the delight. So in LinkedIn, I find that I don't just go to LinkedIn to look people up. I go to LinkedIn to see people mentioning me. I go to LinkedIn to see what other people say. And notoriously, the newsfeed format from social media is incredibly powerful. I will go to LinkedIn with the intention of looking one thing up or providing information. And then I will suddenly realize 10 minutes later that I've been looking at content. And I think for many people, the delight on LinkedIn comes from the fact that the um, blitzscaling a startup podcast is broadcast live on LinkedIn. That undoubtedly produces delight in all who watch it. Mm -hmm. Okay. So here where, okay. So the idea here is you want to create a product which is different for people and so much better um, that they are surprised and delighted that it exists. And if you do not do that, you're just not going to become an iconic tech company. Is that is that accurate? Like that's kind of like, these are necessary conditions to uh, becoming an outlier. I think it's largely true. Now, I think that there is an exception, which is, I think that in certain forms of enterprise companies, 
it is not as essential. So how many times you've heard people tell you EMC surprised and delighted me or Oracle surprised and delighted me. If the utilitarian reasons for adopting a product are strong enough and the amount of money involved is large enough, you can overcome a lack of surprise and delight. But even then you still need that faster, cheaper, better, different. But wouldn't you, wouldn't the argument be that obviously for the end users, Oracle isn't surprising or delightful, but for the IT, the CIO or the IT department, uh, it would be, I mean, I'm not a CIO, but presumably for the, the buyer, the person shelling out the cash, um, at least originally Oracle was surprisingly delightful uh, in some manner that we as end users can't imagine. Mm, not clear, but I will give you a slightly different example that shows how surprise and delight can be built into an enterprise product. I have never really used this, but I know it to be true that the Bloomberg terminal is one of the great success stories in history. Michael Bloomberg is a massive, massive multi-billionaire because of his company and the basis of his company is the Bloomberg terminal. And obviously people buy the Bloomberg terminal to be able to look up information on the markets, to calculate trades and interest rates and things like that. But one of the things that caused the terminal to also delight folks is that they could use it for other things. So for example, if you knew how to use the terminal, you could use the terminal to get theater tickets last minute. You could use it to find restaurant recommendations, all sorts of other things that you would do if you were a well-paid person with a giant expense report in Manhattan. And those things were not necessarily a part of the sales pitch when they went and said, hey, your company should buy these terminals. But it was. So I think that you can All right. Did I cut out? Yes. I don't know if it's probably on my end. I think it might be. Well, the upload hopefully will continue. Yeah. Okay. So, so, so the takeaway is, like, enterprise products can be ROI driven, and don't necessarily need the surprise and delight. Uh, but it's you know helpful for sure. Correct. Um, okay. People use surprise and delight in an other way. And I want to, I mean, I think there are a lot of different ways, but I want to talk through one, which I've mm -hmm. seen often and see if it's just, you know, a, a misuse of the, the concept. So, so, so here's a, an example of somebody that, that I heard from somebody where I heard on a podcast or, or uh, somebody explaining surprise and delight. She's like, they went to the um, Ritz-Carlton and they, with their family and uh, their kid uh, lost some type of toy. And then the, the Ritz-Carlton people uh, called them like two days later and they'd already left and were like, hey, did your kid lose his toy? And then they kind of like couriered it over to them, um, which, you know, surprised them and delighted them uh, in the way that they were, you know, treated there. And it's kind of like a more of a customer service concept. And 
that, that that isn't that just isn't what we're talking about here. I think it's a maybe a useful way to incentivize customer service reps to do a good job of giving good service, but like that's not the same concept. Is that, is that right? It's not. It is that surprise and delight concept as applied to service as opposed to the product itself, which is certainly still powerful, but that largely becomes an overlay as opposed to something that's fundamental. So we talk about the Ritz-Carlton famously. There's also other uh, companies that are famous for their service like Nordstrom, the department store and what have you. And it is absolutely the case that surprising, delighting through service can make your company very popular and improve, uh, improve the customer perceptions. But it doesn't fundamentally change the product itself. And so it can distinguish you from other people who have a similar level of product but it can't necessarily make you put you ahead of people who have a superior product, but don't quite surprise and delight are just kind of there. And so I think that the service is best exemplified by the way that a company like a Trader Joe's, for example, operates. Trader Joe's, of course, is a grocery store that has a lot of things that make it superior. The first, of course, is that it has a limited number of SKUs. It's almost all private label brands and has established a trust among the consumers that they can go ahead and get great products at Trader Joe's. But the other thing that's always commented on is that people really feel like the folks who work at Trader Joe's are happy and helpful. And it's a very different experience than going to say a Walmart or a typical grocery store. And I would say that, again, Trader Joe's does not win because it has the same products and then also offers better service. But offering that better service, that surprise and delight, reinforces the strength it already has thanks to its other strategies. Right. But that's, and, and I think there's a whole debate in, you know, customer service and um, uh, about whether that's a, a smart way of doing things, whether like over-delivering is actually the right place invest rather than to deliver consistently what was promised. Um, I know that's a whole debate, but that, that's not what we're talking about. By the about. way, I, I will weigh in on the debate for a second. What it depends on is the fact that people experience enough of your competitors so that they recognize that you are just significantly better. Right. So it's difficult right. to pull off the overserve strategy if you're the only person providing those products all you're doing is you are setting a new normal baseline for the level of service expected around that product and people will probably adapt to it from a hedonic treadmill standpoint but if you are trader joe's and your customers still regularly shop at walmart or kroger's or if you're an in and out burger and your customers regularly still see mcdonald's and burger kings and things like that they will be constantly reminded that you are going above and beyond that, that your product and service are superior. And so having the negative comparison with the competitor, having the negative example that reinforces why what you're doing is actually special, helps keep that surprise and delight strategy working, even if it remains the same, even if you're not advancing along that treadmill. Right. But the term surprise and delight which was originally coined, I think, as part of like the Web 2.0, kind of like as a startup term, um, was more like, am I right to believe that it's something that actually you can plan 
before. So you can sit down or like you as a VC, or you yeah. can look at a business and say, regardless of the execution or like assuming good enough execution, will this surprise and delight people? And then for me as an entrepreneur, and I'm thinking of a business idea, okay, like, hey, will this business idea, assuming good execution, will it, but not amazing, will it surprise and delight people? And that's, that's knowable. Like you can know, hey, if I start LinkedIn, this is going to surprise and delight people. Well, if I start whatever, um, you know, the millions of these kind of relatively lousy startups, but, but let's say uh, uh, like Uber for chocolate bars, no one's going to be surprised and delighted that there's an Uber for chocolate bars. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you do have to aim for some form of surprise and delight unless you are a pure enterprise product with a massive cost advantage of some kind, which again, can work. But I think that what this puts you in mind of is really getting into the mindset of the end user, the customer, right? The only way to surprise and delight is to actually understand both what their expectations are and how to exceed them. And to properly surprise and delight on a consistent basis, you need that understanding. And that is true whether you are building consumer internet software, making a fried chicken sandwich, or offering some sort of service. Right. Yeah, well, this is a really, really helpful conversation because it's like a term that's thrown around so often. And I, as we've discussed today, it's actually really important. It's actually a necessary condition to be a successful startup, but it's like misused as many of these kind of like terms it just sounds really good. Like they just get used by people for other reasons because they, they just sound compelling. Um, right, there's a meta point unclear. here. The meta point here is that we have all these terms, jargon, if you will, but I prefer to call them terms that people use in our industry or any industry. And if you use them without actually thinking about the reasons why they have become conventional wisdom, if you use them without thinking about how they're actually instantiated, then all you're doing is like a Harry Potter fan invoking an incantation that has no way of actually doing something. I cannot go around in real life and say expelliarmus and expect to knock wands out of people's hands. And what you need to do with any term like a surprise and delight or any of the other things we've talked about in this podcast is to stop and try to understand what's behind it. What's the mechanism of action? What are the actual reasons why this strategy has worked for people in the past so that you can also know when it won't work because no strategy is always going to work. And this case, when it won't work is, uh, essentially enterprise sales where it's just ROI. It's like, hey, am I going to spend a million bucks and get $20 trillion back? I don't care if I'm surprised and delighted because I like that's not what, what this is about. But so, so, so that would be where surprise and delight doesn't apply. Yes. Or government procurement, for example, as well. Notoriously so. When your customer is forced to use whatever you give them, then surprise and delight is a luxury and not something that people really care about. But wherever there is user choice, that's the common thread. Wherever there is user choice, users will gravitate towards that which surprises and delights them. And it will do so in a way that is irrational, simply because this is part of how our human experience works. We are tuned to look for novelty. We are tuned 
to really respond positively to upside. And so surprise and delight is simply another way of hacking the human emotional system. If I understand correctly, what you're saying is some businesses rely on a rational buyer. So let's say an IT director or a, mm -hmm. a government procurement person. Who is not the direct end user. Right. Um, and, and and those for those that's for, for that type of sale or that type of transaction where it's a relatively rational decision you you can get away with not surprising and delighting people but consumers specifically but also many many others um uh most end users they end up not being fully rational and uh, that's why that that's where surprise and delight is you know necessary for capturing their attention, getting them to actually do the thing or adopt this the new thing. That's right. It's part of the user experience, and surprise and delight is something that takes user experience to a level beyond the merely competent. Okay, so um, Chris, this has been super helpful. And I hope uh, you know people like me um, and other people listening will uh, be able to ask themselves, "Hey, I'm starting a new business, and uh, does this concept apply to me? Should should I be surprising and delighting people? In fact, should I not be building this business if I can't surprise and delight people?" And um, what I also hope is that if anybody listening has a friend who is starting a business and that should be asking themselves that question, uh, please share this episode with them so that they can think this through because it is you know, really important. And as always, we like to remind our listeners that if you want to get early access to the questions that Julian's going to ask me to learn about what's going on, to join quarterly calls where Julian works with folks, and I may even make an appearance, you should, of course, go to the Blitzscaling a Startup Pot, uh, Patreon, which is, I believe, patreon.com slash blitzscaling. Exactly. And you can find us, I mean, we're all on all platforms. So we're on um, we're on LinkedIn, we're on Twitter, we're on uh, YouTube, we're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, etc. So you can subscribe uh, there and uh, so that you can get the, uh, the latest episodes and even get alerts when we uh, are doing live streams, either with the guests or between Chris and I, uh, so that you, just last week we did a live stream with the CEO of um, Nielsen. Uh, so, so you would have uh, gotten an alert that that live stream is going on if you are following us. So, uh, follow us there. And Chris, thank you for the time. Uh, and um, also want to thank our team, uh, you know, Shlok and Bio for uh, making all this happen. Yes, and a quick note for programming purposes, I will be unavailable next week. I'll be in Brazil speaking at uh, two conferences that particular day. So I'm afraid I will not be here. And Julian, of course, you should feel free to put something else out in this place. But I look forward to being back after that, at which point I will have been to both Sao Paulo, Brazil and Monterey, Mexico. So a bit of a Latin American November. And yeah, so our, our next Chris and Julian um, episode is on the 17th uh, at 2.30 p.m. Pacific, uh, which is 11, wait, no, it's 4.30 p.m. Eastern. 
Eight uh, five thirty p.m. Eastern. Two thirty uh, plus three. Uh, right, is five. right, right. Five thirty. <laughs> I'm so confused with time zones now because uh, I'm I I'm like moving around all the time. Yes, time and zones apparently are a little not. inconvenient. All right, bye, Chris, and everyone listening. I think it is important, and I don't do this enough. Thank you for spending you know the last forty five minutes with us. Like obviously, you have a million other podcasts you could listen to, and we love that you are uh, part of our community. Thank you so much.